All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll turn to Colossians 1. That's where we'll start. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback in front of, uh, in front of you under a seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip with us. We will start off in Colossians 1. Glad you're here today, <coughs> Sunday after Christmas. We'll wrap up our series on the Incarnation. So uh, we're in the middle of a few weeks where we're thinking through what it means as Christians that we believe in what we call the Incarnation, which is what we celebrate here at Christmas time, the fact that God became man. So as Christians, we believe in this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and at Christmas time, what we're celebrating is that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he, he becomes a human being 2,000 years ago and, and lives this concrete historical life that's been recorded for us in the Gospels. And so we've been trying to flesh out some implications of that. What does that mean for us? Um, if, if, if it's really true, if that's what we believe as Christians, what does that, that mean for us? Sometimes I think we, as Christians, ignore the life of Jesus and kind of think maybe he was just born to die. And, and kind of his life and what's recorded for us in the Gospels is just kind of an accident. Uh, and it's, it's not really worth our studying. So like we try to do often here at First Colony, I'm trying to push you back to the Gospels, push us back to the Gospels to really understand what's happening as the, the second person, the Trinity, as God himself becomes a human being and lives among us. Um, and we have that recorded for us in, in our four Gospels. I want to start today by asking you a question. What do you think of, if someone were to ask you, what is a human being? Or better yet, what is an ideal human being? What is the ideal human being for you? What is humanity? When you think of humanity, what comes to your mind? What's the picture that's painted? What type of person is that? What is a human being supposed to be? And then think through this. Where does that come from? Where does your picture of a human being come from? What's the source that you get that from? I think that a lot of us, if, if we were being honest... What we think of when we think of what a human being is, is cultural, okay? So, particularly in our kind of context, I think you've got the American dream kind of going on, right? I mean, I think that's still deep in our psyche as Americans, this kind of Wild West idea. It's individualistic, okay? It's kind of heroic, me against the world. I'm fashioning my own life. I'm going after my dreams. I'm making it happen. I'm pulling myself up from my bootstraps. I think some of us maybe get our image of what a human being is, an ideal human being, from, from the media. Uh, so at the school I teach, I see this a lot, right? Um, the people in, in magazines, celebrities, in movies, literature, music. That's what a human being is. That's what a human being should be. Or perhaps it's, it's from our families. Perhaps it's our father or our mother or a brother and a sister. When we think of that person, that's just ingrained in us. That's, that's what a human being is supposed to be like. Um, last week, last Sunday, we, we talked about one of the truths of the incarnation of, of God becoming man is that Jesus, the human Jesus, his life, his person, reveals to us who God is. This morning, though, I want to suggest the exact opposite is true as well. That Jesus, his life and his person, Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, he reveals to us what true humanity is, what a genuine, full human being looks like, what you and I are supposed to look like as human beings, and what we will one day look like as Christians. So a few weeks ago, we, we talked about this idea The scriptures teach over and over again throughout the New Testament that as Christians, your ultimate goal or destiny is to look like Jesus, We conform to the image of the Son, Romans chapter 8. Now, we might not like that, Right, And we might not have thought that far down the road, but if you're a Christian and you believe what the scriptures teach in the New Testament, one day you will look like Jesus. Doesn't matter how you get there exactly, 
whether you get there faster than someone else or slower than someone else, on an easy road or on a hard road, one day you will, will look like the one that we saw when he came and, and, and fleshed himself, incarnated himself among us. So, so this morning we want to look at this and, and flesh out this implication that, that perhaps in the incarnation we get a revelation, not just of who God is, but also of who uh, human beings should be, who, who we are supposed to be and one day will be. So we'll pick it up in Colossians chapter 1. If you'll read with me, uh, we'll start in verse 15, okay? Colossians 1, verse 15, we'll read this uh, hymn about Jesus that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Verse 15, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. All right, we're going to hone on this first little phrase here, the image of the invisible God, but we'll keep reading. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so you see what we talked about last week here in verse 19. And, and Jesus, in his life, this human life recorded for us in the Gospels, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And then when we head back to verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. So John would say, no one's seen God, but we've now seen him in Jesus. Which is a remarkable thing to say, that this human being that we saw walking around, that the disciples talked to and, and learned from and followed, was God. They saw God. They heard God. They got to know God. Jesus and John says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. The invisible God, we've seen what he looks like, the image of God. But if you are an astute reader of the scriptures, okay, and you've really let the, the language of the Bible get into your veins, you'll recognize this phrase, image of God. Because this phrase is something we see elsewhere throughout the scriptures. Primarily, we find this in the book of Genesis at creation. An image of God is not used to refer to the second person, the Trinity, at first. It's used to refer to us, humans. Humans are at least supposed to be the images of God. Paul and Colossians says he is the image of God. He is what a human being was meant to be, was supposed to be, and is going to be in the end. Fully God, fully man. So we need to unpack this idea, image of God. Okay, So, so I want us to go back to the source, Genesis chapter 1. So we'll flip. This should be an easy flip for everybody. Okay, This is all the way to the left. First page. Genesis 1. I want us to, to dig into this idea. You've, you've got Jesus as the image of the invisible God, standing in the place of what a human being was supposed to be all along. Jesus is fully human, because to be fully hum, human is to be an image bearer. It's to be one who, who has the image of God on them. We'll pick it up at Genesis 1, verse 26. <clears throat> then God said, this is during the creation story, sixth day, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So, so both genders here, images of God in his creation. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So follow me here. According to the scriptures here in Genesis, the biblical definition of a human being, what a human being is at its core, is someone who looks like God. Someone who bears the image of God, an image bearer. The image of God, male and female, he created them. Which begs the question, what does that mean to look like God? What does it mean to be an image bearer, to be in the image of God? Does it mean physically you look like him? Most people have, have worked out kind of in, in nature terms. What is our nature that's like the nature of God? And so some have suggested over the years that to be an image bearer means that you can think like God can think. You can reason. You can use your mind. You can make choices. You have free will. Or that to, to be an image bearer means that you can love. That you can form relationships, meaningful relationships with other people. Now, as often as the case when we read the Bible... If you look at the context of the, the world around the scriptures when they're written, they often help you out and give you some clues, okay? What we know from the ancient Near East, okay, so the time period when Genesis would have been written, way back when, is that this phrase, image of God, is not invented in Genesis. This is not the first time we see this in history. In fact, it's a really popular phrase. What we, we know is we don't have to guess what this means to be image bearers, to be the images of God. Because we, we know what it means from, from the ancient world. What the author of Genesis is doing here is he is using a parallel to the world around him and saying it's like this when God created it. It's like these other images that we've seen throughout the world. So here's how images of God work in the ancient Near East, okay? We are true historical scholars this morning, all right? Hope you're right. Thinking caps, we're going to dig in here uh, for a couple minutes. Now, in the ancient world, kings, you had this kingdom, a king would often be considered a god. Okay, or at least the son of a god, but they're very closely related. And what a king would do is he would have this big kingdom, and he had to work out a way that he could rule his kingdom. That he could bring his order, his dominion, his wise stewardship to his kingdom. That things would work the way he wants them to work. Now, back before there were planes and trains and automobiles, okay, you, you couldn't travel across a large kingdom very fast. You couldn't mobilize a big army all that fast either. So you had to be pretty creative about ways that, that you could do this, you could rule over your kingdom. One of the things that, that kings started to do, and, and there's tons of historical evidence for this, is they started making statues of themselves. And they were called images of God. Now what you do is you put these statues all over your kingdom. In fact, some historians say in certain kingdoms, you probably wouldn't be able to be anywhere in the kingdom without being an eyesight of a statue, of an image of that king. And what it does, watch it closely here, is this physical representation of the king, the statue, this image, enforces their reign, their rule. Imagine you're in a small little village, okay? Kind of this out-of-the-way little village. The king has never been to your puny little village, okay? You've never seen him. You've heard all about him. You know you're a part of his kingdom, but for all kind of experiential reasons, you, I mean, you have no even proof that he exists. So every year you're paying taxes. We all love taxes, I know, okay? But after a few years, you're paying taxes, and the, the kings of men, the tax letters come to your little village, and they say time to pay up. Rates went up a little bit this year as well. So, so here we go. Let's, let's see the coin. And you start to think to yourself, I've never even seen this king. I pay him a whole lot of money. Never seen him come here. Never seen him do anything. I don't even know if he exists or if he exists that he could do anything. That he could come and, and, and kind of 
punish me if I don't pay taxes, if I rebel, things of that nature. And, and one of the things that these images did was they kind of reminded people who was in charge. They helped, in a sense, enforce that king's rule over creation. So here's a picture in the Genesis creation story. God creates the world, and on the sixth day, he puts in his images, alive beings, different from these statues, and their job is to help bring his wise order to creation. To be an image bearer, let me say it real clearly, follow me here, is to talk about your purpose in creation, your function, what you are supposed to do. You see this in the text. I mean, it gives us clues here. Let's make man in our image. And what to say? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing. Verse 28, be fruitful, multiply. So put images everywhere so that everyone knows who's in control. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over everything thing that moves on the earth. Human beings are, in a sense, God's co-rulers, his viceroys, meant to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He puts images everywhere, and they are to have dominion. They're to subdue. They're to take care of his creation, bring his wise order and rule to the world that he has created on heaven as it is in earth. Now, I'll suggest real quickly here this morning, and I'll do this gently, that you'll find in the Genesis text and in this theme throughout Scripture a responsibility that humanity has to take care of animals and the created order, including the environment, including the world that we live in. I grew up in a context that I think might not be unfamiliar to some of us, where PETA was made fun of, okay? And this idea that we've been given dominion over creation was really a blank check to do whatever we wanted with creation. Uh, So just recently I I was reading uh, some real high academic literature, okay? You probably wouldn't be able to keep up with me when I'm reading through this. It's Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. I don't know if you ever... Again, it's pretty deep. You've got to hold your breath to get there. Um, and I didn't realize about Dr. Seuss, but he's a pretty political writer. Uh, and, and the Lorax is all about this kind of idea. You go in, and for profit, for whatever you want, you destroy what had been created and what was there originally. And as I grew up, that was often how this text, this idea was kind of used. We've been given the world to kind of do with it what we want. Do with what animals what we want to do with them and, and do with the created order what we want to do with them. I think, though, this, this, this actual theme in the scriptures would lead you in the opposite direction. It might be a biblically good criteria to judge how we're doing as humanity to ask this question, how are we treating animals? How are we treating the birds and the fish and the creeping things? How are we treating the earth? How are we treating our, our environment? Real gentle. I think that theme is here. I think this should direct us in that general area, okay? We've been given responsibility. And so in the scriptures, there's this very close link between how humans are doing and how the rest of the world is doing. When, when human beings rebel, real, real fast right after this text here in Genesis 1, the whole world, it says, is fallen. Creation itself falls. In Romans 8, Paul says creation is groaning under sin and death because human beings have fallen. When we fell, the things we were supposed to take care of fell as well. And what is creation waiting for? What are the animals waiting for? For the sons of God to be revealed. 
for you and I to do what we were supposed to do all along. For us to take our rightful place in creation as those meant to steward what God had created, what he's done. So when you see image bearer, think one who's supposed to bring God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. One who's supposed to ensure God's reign and rule, what he intended for creation, would come about in the world that he has created. Now, the fall happens. So human beings rebel, and we obviously step far out of this role that's been laid out for us in creation. And as we fall, so goes, again, creation. Enslaved to sin and to death. The question here would be, after the fall... Do human beings still have the image of God? Do we still bear the image? Is it marred? Is it scratched? Or is it destroyed? Is it completely done away with? Does God abandon this whole idea, this whole vocation, this whole project? The early church fathers would say it's like a coin that has an image on it. And what happens with the fall is the image gets scratched and rusted away, but it's always still there. There's always a bit of it there, even as it wears away kind of to nothingness. One of my uh, kind of uh, language things that, that I want us to, as Christians, use language very carefully, has to do with humanity, okay? I think sometimes we sell humanity short. Uh, you probably said this, I've said this uh, all the time. If you make a mistake, okay? So I do something stupid. doesn't happen a lot, but it happens, okay? I, I make a, a big mistake. And, and as kind of a way to explain that, I was joking, by the way, I make lots of mistakes. But as a, as a way to explain that, I say, I was only human, right? Well, of course I messed up. I'm only human. Again, follow me, though. If the biblical definition of humanity, of a human being, is one who bears God's image, if I'm rebelling against God, if I've stepped out of his will for my life and for the the life of creation itself, the problem is not that I'm human. The problem is that I'm not human enough. I'm not being truly human in that moment. When I'm outside of God's will for my life and his will for creation, for the world, it's because I'm not really fulfilling the role of humanity, one who bears his image, who looks like him, who brings his rule and order to creation. I think with the fall, we become less human. We step out of the role, the place in creation God had for us. Augustine um, would say this, he says, The image of God is always there with a human even if it's worn away almost to nothing. Even if it gets to the point where they, they bear no resemblance to a human being anymore. There's still that image there. It can be restored. It can be renewed. And what, what God does is he calls Israel. He calls this group of people to be the ones who bear his image. To be the ones who take the place of all of humanity in doing the, the role that he has laid out for them. In fact, if you read through the rest of the Genesis text... Um, these commands and blessings given to humanity in just one are then given to Israel throughout the rest of Genesis. You see this funneling effect in the Bible. The role laid out for humanity, once humanity fails, is laid out for a smaller subset of humanity, Israel. But Israel will fail just like all of humanity did, and you'll see the funneling go again. And what was laid out for Israel will now be laid out for one, for Jesus the Messiah, who Paul would say in Colossians is the image of God. He's the one who looks like God. And he's the one who's brought God's will to earth. Who's brought his kingdom to earth as it is on heaven. Now flip to Psalm 8 with me. So you'll you see this thread run throughout the scriptures. We'll, we'll hit a couple places real quick here. Psalm chapter 8. This is a song 
sung in worship, in Israel's worship, that celebrates this role given to humans. And this is going to be an important psalm when Jesus comes along, as the New Testament authors uh, work out his identity. Psalm chapter 8, as Israel's called to, to bear God's image, to renew their humanity, to become more human. Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, here it is, what is man? Don't think male there, think mankind. What is females and males, what are humans, that you're mindful of them? And the son of man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see kind of a hierarchy here, right? We're a little under the angels, the heavenly beings, but above the rest of the created order, meant to steward it. The idea is not that we're ruling in place of God, but that God is ruling his creation through us, through human beings. Sometimes when people think about Jesus and they think about the fact that he's fully God and fully human, they wonder if this is a contradiction. We often think of God in terms that aren't compatible with humanity. But what's interesting is you really think through this image of God. If you really think through uh, the fact that that's the definition of humanity, a human being is a role begging to be played by God. Because who looks more like God? Who can bear the best image of God than God himself? Who can really bring his kingdom to earth as in heaven other than the Son, the Christ, the Messiah? That's what you see in the Gospels. Jesus comes and he kind of takes this place. He takes this role. So he has dominion over the works, uh, over the wind and over the waves. He has dominion. He corrects things in the created order that had been out of place, out of whack. When he sees things that don't work, that aren't supposed to be there, he fixes them. He turns them upright. He puts them back into their proper order. He brings the kingdom to earth, as is in heaven. And I think when you look at his life, what you're seeing, is, as Paul would say in Colossians, is you're seeing what a human being looks like. A true human. The kind of human that you and I are supposed to be. And, this is key, one day will be. This is our destiny as Christians. This is our fate. This is the end of the road. To be one who walks and talks and looks and acts like Jesus, the true human being. And so I, I think uh, when you read the scriptures, Jesus not only reveals to us what a human being looks like in his life, through his life, he also empowers us to become more and more human, to bear the image of God more and more. This is a key truth. He empowers us. He sends us his spirit who dwells within us. And we, we gradually become to reflect his image more and more. So let's flip to Colossians again. We'll, we'll land over here. No more flipping. But if you'll turn to Colossians... We'll, we will flip to Ephesians, but then we'll be done, I promise. <laughs> Colossians 3. So this is a chapter or two after the uh, hymn we read. Colossians 3, which is a, a great chapter. Um, we'll just read a couple verses here with verse 9. Colossians 3, verse 9. Paul's talking to the Christian community, the believers, you and I. And he says, Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
coming to bear God's image more and more, becoming more and more human. And then if you flip to the left to Ephesians, just one book over, Ephesians chapter 4, you see a similar thing in verse 17. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is holding thing back here, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness or image of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Jesus reveals to us what a human being looks like in his life, the way he lives and acts and talks and walks the way he loves, the way he prays, the way he worships. And then now, as his people, you and I are being renewed in that image, becoming more and more humans. And and the end of the picture here in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, is that one day you and I are, we're resurrected, and and we do walk and talk like Jesus. And and in fact, if you go read at the end of Revelation, you'll see the reigning language. It says, we'll reign with Christ for all of eternity, which is very interesting. But it makes sense if you follow the thread from Genesis chapter 1, when we were supposed to be, in a sense, reigning all along in a place of authority over God's created world. Not to use it for our own advantage, but to take care of it, to steward it, to bring God's wise order to it. So a few applications, and we'll wrap up this morning. So what? So what that Jesus' life, this person, reveals uh, what a human being is. The, The first thing I would say is this. If you want to be a human being... It's something that you have to work at. It's something that you have to pursue. We, we fleshed this out a little bit a few weeks ago when we did our virtue series. We talked about practicing virtues, strengths of character. But there are two, I think, mistakes that people make sometimes when it comes to looking at Jesus, looking at his life, and looking at the call to imitate, to follow after him. The first is this kind of romantic idea that what really counts as far as being a human being is what comes natural to you. This kind of authenticity. And, and what I would say to that is what I've always said, which is if you wait for the day when you wake up and, and happen to look like Jesus, you're going to be waiting for a long time. I don't think you're ever just going to accidentally like trip into looking like Jesus. And you'll wake up in, in 25 years and go, oh, wow, I look like God today. I'm walking like Jesus, I'm talking like Jesus, I'm acting like Jesus. I don't think it, it, it will ever happen. I think it's something that has to be chosen, has to be gone after in daily, habitual, small choices in your life. It's something that has to be practiced. It's a, it's a muscle that has to be flexed. I think we, we need to avoid this kind of romantic idea of, of humanity being just this expression of whatever comes naturally to you. I mean, look at the language in, in the text in Ephesians and Colossians we read. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. This is something you have to do. This is not something that you wake up with. It's something that can be hard, that can take a long time, but something you work towards, something you go after, empowered by the Spirit, with the grace that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. The second, I think, mistake that, that some might make would be this idea and this is more theological circles and churches, that you and I are just desperate sinners. 
and will remain that way until the day we die. And there's no path for us to walk on, at least in this life, of moral growth, of ethical growth, of looking more and more like Jesus. I think that idea is foreign to the scriptures. I think the scriptures think you and I as a community are and should be being renewed in our image, looking more and more like Jesus. Now this is not some magical thing, and this is not some um, kind of overnight thing where we're this perfect community. It's a messy, long, drawn-out process, but it's happening. It's, it's working its way out here and now. Here's a question I would ask you. Are you more human today than you were a year ago? If we're working with this idea that to be a human is to look like God, to bear his image, in particular to act and talk and look like Jesus acted and talked and looked like in the Gospels. Are you more human today than you were a year ago? Or is it kind of stagnated or, or it maybe even gone backwards? And maybe this would be an interesting goal for 2013 to be able to say at the end of the next year coming up that I'm more human than this, this past year. I'm moving toward this goal laid out for me in the scriptures that one day I'll be conformed to his image, renewed in the likeness of my creator. Or you're more human than you used to be. And, and then I think we've got to, again, run back to the gospels. And we've got to take cues from Jesus' life. We've got to take cues from his teachings. We've got to take cues from what we see revealed to us in the gospels. Jesus says that the most important command for human being, the most wise thing that, get, that can be learned by you and I is this double love, loving God and loving our neighbor. And luckily for us, we don't have to guess at how to fill in what that looks like. We have it in front of us in Jesus. We see what loving God looks like as Jesus loves the Father. Jesus has this very intimate prayer life in the scriptures. Apparently to be a human being is to be one who prays. One who prays often. One who prays constantly. One who throws rocks at the gates of heaven. Jesus prays with his community. He also prays by himself. He finds times of solitude. Jesus lives an obedient life to the Father. He says, whatever the Father tells me to do, I do. He, he lives a spirit-filled life. In fact, if you go read the Gospels, the Spirit is all over Jesus. He, he's obedient to the Father, and he lives a life of the Spirit, where he goes with the promptings of the Spirit. He's in tune with the Spirit's movement. We see what loving God looks like. We, we see also what loving others looks like in the life of Jesus. We see what it looks like to reach out to the other in gentleness. We see what it looks like to, to have a meal with the outcasts. We see what it looks like to forgive our enemies, and those who have persecuted us, to pray for those who are against us. We also see with Jesus what it means to, to love others with the truth. Jesus could confront with truth, particularly in the Gospels, the religious crowd. I mean, that's who Jesus often gets toe-to-toe with and chest-to-chest with. Loving others often means confronting, exposing, not only in our communities, but in the world, what's gone wrong, what is not truly human. What's, what's part of the problem and not part of the solution. And we might end in a similar fashion um, to, to a week ago, which is this idea of cruciformity, of, of looking like the cross, of, of living this self-sacrificial servant-type life. This is the life of Jesus. Um, and again, we go back to what is a human being? I think in our culture, we are very, we are very influenced by this dream of power and success and fame. I mean, if, if I were to answer the question of, of what it looks like for me, I think automatically what a human being looks like. It would be a mixture of celebrity and athlete would be what it would be like. Having fame and power and, and then having a stage, being good at something, being an, an expert at something, having people kind of fawn over you for, for a skill set. 
and then having a, a life of comfort and ease. The life, though, that Jesus lays out for us in the Gospels is much different. And Jesus will make this contrast over and over again. He'll say, hey, look at the Gentiles. Look at how they lord authority over each other. If they have money, look at how they use it for their own benefit. If they have power, look at how they use it for their own benefit. If they have time or resources or skills, look at how they use it for their own benefit. But he says, that's not to be the case with you. Why? Well, look at how I'm living. I'm serving others. If I have money, I'm using it to bless others. If I have time, I'm using it to bless and to serve others. If I have resources or skills, I'm using it to serve. I'm using it to love. I'm sacrificing myself. And I'm I'm bringing the kingdom to earth as is in heaven. So as we continue in the Christmas season, um, we've still got a few days left before Christmas ends. We're right in the middle of of the 12 days. Uh, Perhaps today we, we... we think about what it means to really be a human being, of, of what our goal is as human beings, of maybe just how human we actually are. And then and perhaps we, we run back to the Gospels and we, we take a look, perhaps a surprising look, at what humanity really is. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the scriptures you've given us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his life. We thank you for the incarnation. Uh, we thank you for all the things that, that you've accomplished with the incarnation that you provide us. Uh, we thank you for revealing who you are. We thank you for inaugurating your kingdom on earth, bringing salvation. We thank you for revealing what humanity is supposed to look like. Father, we, we confess all the ways that we've fallen short of our role to, to bring your kingdom here on earth, to, to reflect your image, Father. Uh, and we pray for, for your spirit. We pray for your help, for your guidance. Um, and we rejoice in the fact that you have saved us, that that's your grace that, that purchases um, our, our standing in your, in your family, Father. Um, not our performance and not how fast or how well uh, we start to look like you and reflect your image. But it's your grace that motivates us. It's your, it's your perfect love, um, your unconditional love that, that continues to push us on the path, Father, of getting to know you more and of of starting to reflect who you are out into the world around us more and more, Father. Uh, We pray that as we come to the table and as we worship this morning, uh, that you would meet with us and transform us, uh, that we would more and more look like you, uh, your people, your images. We love you. It's in your son's name that all God's people said. Amen.